702. The Naked Scientist. <laughs> right, it's now time for us to connect with uh, Dr. Chris Smith, our Naked Scientist, Mondays after 2.30. This is where we get to really explore our curiosity and have uh, some of our science questions answered. I see your questions also coming in already. Um, you can drop us a voice note instead of texting them out, by the way, if you're sending them via uh, WhatsApp. Um, so, Chris, good afternoon. Hello, Azza. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. Let's start with this story um, that's coming from Cambridge about a, a way of visualizing molecules in 3D using a VR, that virtual reality headset. Yeah, who would have thought you could step inside your own immune system? But that's what researchers at the University of Cambridge have come up with a way of doing. Basically, they've got software which they have developed that can take molecules and render those molecules into a three-dimensional virtual reality experience so that you can visualise what you're working on, basically your work, and see it. You can turn something that would normally be far too small to see and present it to yourself in a very visual way. And this enables you to interact with it, think about it, see it, share it, and experience it with others in a way that previously was much more difficult to do. And one of the uh, mm. projects that they did was to actually take uh, some immune cells from one of the members of the research team and then enable that person to step inside their own immune system effectively because they built a three-dimensional virtual reality replica of where the molecules that they were interested in inside this person's white blood cells were and it sounds like it's a sort of game and to a certain extent it is a game and it uses many of the same engines and software and that kind of thing that you would use to run a vr game but at the same <laughs> time it does mean that you have this brand new way to explore a lot of what you're working on and to share it around the world so they're doing this in various ways in order to collaborate and to have a unique insight into the structure mm -hmm. of the chemistry they're doing right so it's likely to affect how what we treat certain ailments or our understanding or as you said our understanding of how cells work well possibly previously when we've thought about molecules and things it's a very abstract thing given how big yeah. we are and how tiny the average molecule is it's quite difficult to get your head around what something looks like the shape that it has and therefore see how something else might interact with it because we think in terms of analogies like a hand going into a glove if we want to make a drug that stops a certain disease, if we know the structure of the thing on the surface of the bacterium or the virus that we want to interact with to block it causing mm -hmm. an infection, for example, if you know what that looks like, you can then design a molecule that is the right shape or size to go in there and interact with that structure to block it up. But when you can't see it, it can be more difficult and more abstract in terms of thinking about what sorts of structures and what sorts of interactions might go on. But because a third of the human brain is decoded just to what we see and what we're looking at, so we spend a third of our brain power decoding what goes in through our eyes, turning things mm -hmm. into something that's a, a visual representation of the data we're working on makes it much more tractable as a solution for the human brain to grapple with, which is why I think things like this are going to be very powerful research tools going forward. That's also fascinating. We spend a third of our brain power processing what we see. Yeah. Oh, Give wow. or take. If you were a dog, Azza, yes. then, then it would be um, about a third of your brain would be devoted to what goes up your nose because mm -hmm. uh, dogs have a, a smell-dominated nervous system. That's why they literally smell everything rather than look at it because a dog's sense of smell is very, very powerful compared to their sense of vision. Our sense of smell is much more trivial and simple in comparison. Our visual sense is our dominance.
intelligent sense and more than a third of the neurons in your brain are given over to decoding what you're looking at. Yes. And so in a blind person, just to quickly, before we go to the lines, by the way, I just want to wrap this thought up. So what happens in the brain of a blind person, The that same brain power is goes towards other senses? Well, it depends. If you are blind from birth, then you've never put that brain territory to work decoding visual stimuli. And so yeah. those brain areas in, instead can be hijacked and rerouted and used by other senses. And that does happen. If we do brain scans on people who have been blind since birth, they've never seen, then brain seeing areas tend to respond to other inputs and other mm -hmm. stimuli. So it's almost like the nerve cells are changing their allegiance to doing other jobs because the nerve cells in the brain are very plastic. They can mould themselves and change their connections. But if you're someone who's gone blind later in life, then there's a certain period in life when your brain is much more malleable and plastic and can be moulded and connections can change more freely than when you get older. And when you become older, the brain is more rigid and it rewires itself much more poorly in comparison. So a person who's gone blind later in life, those brain areas which were the seeing areas, they can change their allegiance to do other jobs a bit but not a huge amount, which means if you did restore mm. vision, say it was an eye problem that made that person go blind, if you give them back their ability to get information into those brain areas, a person who had once been able to see would be able to see again. But a person who's okay. been blind since birth, and the same goes for animals, you can do this in animals as well, you'll find animals that if they never see, they don't get the critical time to wire up the seeing parts of their brain properly. And if you even give them vision back later in life, or, or give them vision later in life, they will never see normally. And people have actually done studies on this with, with animals to show that, that it's the same in them as, as it is in humans. Hmm. Well, let's go to the lines now, 011-883-0702. You know the numbers. And this is where you get to chat to Chris Smith, Dr. Chris Smith, our naked scientist, and ask him your science-related question. Joe, you've got one for him this afternoon. Uh, hello, Joe. Uh, hello, hello, Xenia. Uh, Dr. Smith. I'd like to ask you, with regard to the coronavirus, how was the uh, coronavirus transmitted from the bat to the humans at the Wuhan uh, food market, sea market? Hello, Joe. Uh, what Joe's referring to here is that we, we believe that the new coronavirus is a zoonosis. In other words, it's an infection of a wild animal that jumped the species barrier and got into people. Now, what we don't know yet, Joe, is when that happened exactly and where that happened exactly. Although early on, we thought that the food market was the epicentre, subsequent studies have suggested that, in fact, it's not as solid a connection as we'd thought. There were lots of cases connected to that market, yes, but then there were lots of people going there. And when people have studied this looking with a broader lens, they've found, in fact, that it's not so central to the argument. And they think that actually the outbreak did spawn in Wuhan, but they don't know exactly where. And it may well be that people coming into Wuhan from rural China brought the infection with them. And then they started to spread it where they went, which may have included wandering around the market, but other public venues as well. So that then shifts the question to, well, where did the infection jump out of the bat and into people? Uh, we actually made a program on the Naked Scientists about a month or so ago where we did ask the question, where did COVID come from? And in mm -hmm. fact, after this program, if anyone's interested in following up on that, because it was a very comprehensive analysis we did, we talked to scientists from all over the world about this. I will tweet a link 
from at Naked Scientist. So if you follow at Naked Scientist, I'll tweet a link and you can download, it's completely free, you can download that program and listen to our analysis. The current scientific view is that there are thousands of coronaviruses naturally out there in the world, in animals, and that somewhere, probably in rural China, a coronavirus that was the one that caused this outbreak jumped the species barrier from an animal, probably a bat, into humans and probably chance carried it to Wuhan and then it started to spread. There are other theories and other hypotheses and this still remains to be confirmed and corroborated. The other hypotheses are that perhaps human hands had a role to play in this. People are also suggesting that perhaps this virus has been manipulated in some way because one outstanding question that we can't answer is why it is mm. so well adapted to humans. Most viruses, when they jump out of animals and into humans, are not very well adapted to humans. So they either make the person very, very sick or they don't spread very well or both. And we've seen this with flu pandemics and we've seen it with Ebola. It's very unusual for a virus to jump out of an animal into a person and be very well optimised to spread incredibly efficiently in that person. And this virus is. So we don't know where that optimization happened and whether or not a laboratory might have been involved or more likely it just happened naturally and we didn't notice it was happening until it got to somewhere really big mm -hmm. and well connected like Wuhan, which gave it the ability to massively amplify the number of people affected and then spread right. globally from the airport at Wuhan and into the rest of the world. Huh. Thank you for that question, Joe. Next, we have Raz. Hello, Raz. Hi. Hi. How's it? <laughs> Good, thanks. Dr. Leckard, how are you? Hello, Raz. How, I'm fine. How are you? Okay. Listen, do you know how we found a way to transplant the heart and the liver, blah, 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 all the organs, right? Mm. But with one organ we haven't transplanted yet is the brain, right? Now, let's say there is some scientist out there who does figure out a way to transplant a dead person's normal brain to um, a live person who needs that brain. How would that live person be thinking? Um, would he or she be thinking the old person's thoughts or their own thoughts? Do you wow. know, I, I think I've met a few people who have been brain donors in this study. Um, no, I'm just oh. kidding. A few politicians. <laughs> um, the, the answer to this question is no one has worked out how to do a brain transplant because the problem with the central nervous system is unlike many other tissues in the body, where if you injure part of those tissues, they can regenerate so they can grow a new part of themselves. If you take a liver, for example, we know that we can chop out four-fifths of a person's liver and give that four-fifths to somebody else and the one-fifth left behind can grow a new liver. That does not happen with the brain and spinal cord. There is something special about the mammalian brain and spinal cord that when we injure it, it regenerates very poorly. And so if you were to take the brain from a donor person, in order to get it out of that person, you would have to sever the connections it has with the rest of their body. And it would be very difficult to do that without doing damage to the brain and spinal cord. And so therefore, in order to take it out of one person and put it into another person, you might well be able to do that. And people have done head transplantation in experimental animals and, and it, it can be done 
and you re-plumb the brain into the circulatory system to keep its blood flowing in the recipient and that keeps the brain alive but because you've had to divorce it from its connections to the host or to the from the donor body and you can't reconnect it to the new host's body it's almost like that individual has locked in syndrome they would be conscious they would be able to do things like see assuming you took the eyes with the brain they would be able to smell assuming you took the smell sense and transplanted that too but because the connections to the nerves that bring information in from across the body would have been severed and because the connections that take information away from the spinal cord to the muscles would have been severed the individual wouldn't be able to feel anything or move anything and they would still think that they were them they would still believe that they were alive they would be conscious potentially but they would be as though they'd had locked-in syndrome and wouldn't be able to move or do anything for themselves. So I'd think it'd probably be incredibly frightening and a very unpleasant experience for the person. Yeah. But they would at least be alive. And, and so I suppose one view is if you're going to die, and that's one way to stay alive and at least be able to maintain your thought processes, as long as you trusted people to make sure you had a good standard of living afterwards, then that would be one option. But it, I don't think it would mm-hmm. be a very pleasant experience. But people are working on this problem because at the moment when someone gets a brain injury whether it's they've had a car crash or they've hit their head very hard or they have a degenerative disease like motor neurone disease for example at the moment we can't do anything about these sorts of illnesses and damage to the nervous system because the brain repairs itself so poorly scientists are trying to study why that is find out how to surmount that barrier and if we can will be down the road towards being able to make the brain repair itself much better. And that will mean that things like a brain transplant would become much more feasible going into the future. Fascinating. Raz, thank you for an awesome question. Next, we go to Jane and Brynston. Good afternoon, Jane. Good afternoon, Azza, and good afternoon, Chris. Hi, Jane. I've been fascinated ever since 9-11, and now we've had the uh, blast in Beirut. All that huge amount of concrete from those devastated buildings, where does it go and what happens to it? And does it get reused or recycled? Hi, Jane. Well, concrete is effectively stone. When we make cement, you take chalky materials like calcium carbonate and you boil them up in a furnace and add some other minerals as well, drive off all the carbon dioxide and and you get something that's effectively lime. You mix that with water and it then reacts with carbon dioxide from the environment and it makes stone again, calcium carbonate and some other minerals. And so it's an amazing building material because it's so hard, but it's effectively rock or stone. Now, when you blow concrete up and produce an enormous explosion, concrete's really good when you press on it, but it's really weak when you pull on it and a blast will pull concrete to pieces by trying to make it stretch so that will have the effect because of the shock wave of basically like hitting a stone with a hammer it will smash it into billions of pieces and so when the building blew up in Beirut because it had ammonium nitrate which was uh, potentially an explosive but also used as a fertilizer enormous quantities stored in that warehouse that reaction would have released huge amounts of energy which would have ripped the concrete to pieces and produced fine dust And the dust would have blasted out in all directions because it was some of the particles very light. It would have blown on the wind and blown away and landed in the sea and landed farther inland. Other bits of it would have come down locally 
as dust. And indeed, people did say that everything was covered in layers and layers of dust. And it kept on being dusty for days to weeks afterwards, both in Beirut, but also in New York when 9-11 happened. So there's the answer. Enormous amounts of dust. And in fact, a lot of it was breathed in by people who were trying to help people at the scene of the emergencies in both cases. And you have to be really careful because this can lead to a condition called pneumoconiosis. You get dust right down into the bottoms of your lungs and that can actually be inflammatory and harmful to lung tissue. So you should try not to breathe that dust in, but it, but it is, a, is a risk when there's been an area where heavy industry or a, a devastating event like had happened in Beirut. When that happens, the dust in the air is not good for you, so you should try not to breathe it in. Okay. Jane, thanks for that question. Let's go to our voice notes now. Take a listen, Chris. Azania, uh, can you please uh, pose my my question to, to the scientist? Uh, the, the whole thing about tobacco, how does addiction occur in a human body? Because I'm telling you, you know, since I started smoking shop, the level of addiction is immense. When when I used to smoke cotton, I could even stay maybe for a day or two uh, without smoking if the environment is not uh, suitable, you know. Right now, with sharp, I can go for an hour or two hours. So what is happening? <sighs> How does addiction goes? I want to find out because I, I I'm I'm really in a point where I think I need to quit smoking, but I need to understand the technicality, the biological part of it, the mental part. I, yes, I can maybe understand, but the the nicotine part. And there you have it, Chris. So two different brands. He finds that he's more addicted to the the other brand, the new brand that he's smoking and yeah. wants to know why that's so. Well, the addictive component of tobacco products is nicotine. Nicotine is a oil-loving chemical which is present naturally in tobacco plant leaves. The plants make it because it's an insecticide. If an insect eats the leaves of the tobacco plant, then nicotine poisons the nervous system of the insect that's eaten it. And it's because of that activity against the nervous system that we like tobacco, because when we smoke, the nicotine, because it loves oil, it gets into the bloodstream, doesn't stay there very long, it wants to go into the brain because the brain is full of fatty material. So the nicotine moves really rapidly into the brain and it strongly and powerfully stimulates specific circuits in the brain that are connected to the pleasure areas of the brain. And so you end up setting up a cycle where you know that if you smoke, you're going to get this reward. And when you smoke, the nicotine activates the reward center and it gives you a little rush of pleasure chemicals in the brain and makes you feel better. But if you keep on smoking and you become hooked, what actually happens is that those circuits that normally make you feel good turn down or fight back their response so that you feel bad until you smoke. And then when you smoke, you just feel normal again. So it stops being a pleasurable experience and it's just in order to feel good normal about yourself and as soon as you 
remove the nicotine from the cigarette and the levels start to fall in your brain again, you begin to feel unhappy because the levels are not right for you anymore. And so it encourages you to go and smoke again to put the levels back up to restore the pleasure chemicals to where a normal person's pleasure chemicals would be. So it's almost like medicine to take away side effects. Mm. And it's because of those circuits in the brain being strongly wired into your pleasure centre, which is normally there to reward you for doing something good, like going and finding food and eating it, doing something you enjoy, and you're hijacking your pleasure centre and subverting it so that it becomes a cigarette that gives you that pleasure. Uh-huh. Different brands contain different amounts of nicotine, and so some cigarettes will you'll you'll need to smoke fewer cigarettes to get the same rush of nicotine. And so, if you have a stronger cigarette, you'll get more nicotine coming in, so you'll get a bigger stimulus, so you'll feel better for a little while, but quite quickly your brain will adapt again, and as a result, you'll have to smoke more to get the same pleasurable experience. And at the end of the day, you're doing mm-hmm. yourself enormous harm, not just to your health, but also to your wallet as well, because smoking is very expensive. So do try and give up if you can. It's the best thing you can possibly do for your health in the long term. Mm, mm. Yeah, uh, glad you could answer that curiosity. And I'm sure the next time he is do- in the act, you know, he'll be able to have a different sense of what's actually happening. Uh, Chris, we couldn't get to all the questions. We're going to bank some of them for next week, but it's a date till next Monday. It's a date. Thanks, Azza. Have a great one. See you soon, everybody. You too. Thank you. That's Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist.